0: Father, here we are, redeemed by you, chosen by you, forgiven by you, in the process of being sanctified by you, and therefore, Lord, to you, uh, we give all the glory, none to us. Father, I thank you for our kids, our youth, uh, that you have gathered to send up to youth camp this week. And Lord, I do pray that they will have a good time. I, have, I pray that they do make good friends. But most of all, Lord, I pray that you would move in on them with your Holy Spirit, invade their hearts and their minds, and uh, orchestrate revival uh, individually and collectively. Lord, I pray that uh, you would move in on this youth camp in such a way that everybody would be changed and everyone there would be touched by the Holy Spirit and would be leaving there looking more like Christ. And uh, Lord, I thank you for Caleb, our pastor. I thank you for his faithfulness and his availability and his teachability. And Lord, the sacrifices that uh, you've equipped him to make on behalf of this church. And uh, Lord, thank you for getting him there and bringing him back safely. And I thank you for his extreme willingness to serve. And Lord, I pray for him and the folks at First Baptist this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit, have your way there as well. Lord, help Caleb to rightly divide the word and to preach it well with authority. And uh, Lord, help the congregants to receive it and be changed by it. And uh, Lord, again, would you sweep through that church, our church, all churches this morning that are preaching the gospel, sweep through with your Holy Spirit, change our hearts, change our minds, cause us to be more like Christ by the time we're done here this morning, that we may go out and change our world for eternity. And we thank you now that we get to examine your word. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would change us by the hearing of it. And uh, Lord, cause us to leave here different. And again, looking more like Christ by the time we're done. And we hand this time over to you and ask you to do great and mighty things in and through it. In Christ's name, amen. If you would, please turn to Isaiah 62. We are getting ever nearer to the end of Isaiah that we've been doing for a couple of years now. And instead of reading through the text and then backing up and explaining it, what I'm going to do is explain it while we read through it. And that's going to be done more for the sake of time. A little preparation first, though. In Isaiah 61, which Caleb preached on last week, we heard the song of the Messiah. We were introduced to, or rather reintroduced to, a one who would come and take away the sorrow of God's people. In Isaiah 62, which we're examining today, we are introduced to that light that will shine with the promised one and with that promised one's people, illuminating the darkness in such a way that all will see. And we begin in verse 1 where it says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. There's a debate that arises right away with this passage as to whether this is Isaiah speaking or God speaking. There are respectable theologians on either side of that issue. um, And therefore, I am going to reserve judgment on who the actual speaker is. Doesn't matter for our purposes this morning, though, because regardless of who is speaking, the end is the same. Either Isaiah or God will not keep silent until a certain objective has been accomplished involving Zion slash Jerusalem. We will see that that objective, uh, or what that objective is in a moment, but first we have to make a couple important clarifications. The first clarification is that Isaiah is writing poetically and is more frequently than not following certain patterns of speech that are common to Hebrew poetry. And if we don't understand that, it can throw us off and we can start to expect certain things of us Uh, that he's not expecting of us so we've got to get that right what we see particularly at the beginning of this chapter is parallelism where the same idea is repeated twice using different terms as we read Zion and Jerusalem those two words and then we read the two phrases keep silent and be quiet we are not to walk away from this thinking that there are two different pieces or two different places and two different verbs Zion and Jerusalem are poetically synonymous as are keeping silent and being quiet. That's important to someone like me, you know, someone who's kind of your OCD math teacher who has to have everything in order and I got to know exactly what every word means. And uh, what I need to realize here is that I'm not being commanded to do this and then go do that. It's the exact same phrase, just repeated in different words. Going forward, though, we can now be confident that unless instructed specifically in the text, we can use Zion and Jerusalem interchangeably. We will also see that the use of the name Zion and Jerusalem can be, can be and are used in Isaiah's writing figuratively. That brings us to our second clarification. Allow me to defend what I just said about Isaiah using the name Zion and Jerusalem figuratively. Here, At uh, Gateway, we do take the word of God seriously, and we do take it literally. But we also understand that there are different types of writings that God uses to communicate his truth, and he does so strategically. And a lot of times, the terms that he uses are to be taken figuratively, as long as we see from the text that that's exactly what he expects us to do. So in taking the whole of scripture, we're going to see that while Zion and Jerusalem start out as references to a very specific geographical location, their use gradually expands in scope and ultimately refers to God's people in a way that is no longer geographically defined, but becomes spiritually defined. Why does this matter? Because ideas have consequences. Remember that. We must not be sloppy with God's word because if we get it wrong and ideas do have consequences, there will be a price to pay somewhere along the way. When I was in college, I belonged to a very good campus ministry to which I give a world of credit for my spiritual growth and Christian worldview that I hold today. I'm very thankful for them to this day for the spiritual vision and discipline that they developed in me. I can, however point to some theological differences that I've developed over the years, not because of personal preference or self-appeasement, but because it's what I have studied and seen in God's word and believe that that's what it teaches. The difference to which I refer now is not salvific in nature. Getting this one right or wrong will not necessarily make the difference between heaven or hell. Because ideas do have consequences, though, whether or not I can identify what the consequences will be, there will indeed be consequences that result from getting this right or wrong. So it's important that we are careful with it. I was taught, according to an actual systematized theological paradigm, that for Christ to return, in order for him to come back, Old Testament sacrificial practices would have to resume on the Temple of the Mount in Jerusalem, which would then continue under Christ's millennial reign on earth. And, of course, we became anxious over that because on the Temple Mount right now, it's a big Islamic mosque. And we're wondering what kind of war is going to have to take place. And we had those discussions. And while there are many more details associated with this paradigm with which I disagree, this particular dynamic I find to be quite an affront to the Lord himself. And this is why. The notion of animal sacrifices taking place that were established to give the Israelites a picture of the coming Messiah... And then taking place while in the presence of the actual Lamb of God, who was sacrificed to take away the sin of the world, who cried out on the cross that the substitutionary sacrifice for sin was finished, would be an atrocity of greatest measure. Therefore, I reject the systematized theological approach and do so pretty strongly. As I said, though, ideas have consequences. If my idea says that I'm waiting for the reinstitution of animal sacrifice in Jerusalem according to the Old Testament sacrificial law in order for Christ to return, and I'm wrong, I could miss the real thing. That's a problem. I could also develop other horrible and even heretical ideas that could be detrimental to my soul. So again, we've got to get this right. Viewing the religious acts of men as necessary for the appeasement of God, save... Amen? They were what the writer of Hebrews said are shadows. They were designed to give the practitioners a picture of what was to come so that they would understand it and identify it when it arrived. They were designed to keep societal order. They were designed to give man experience in religious failure so that man could see his need for a savior. That was all intentionally done. They were even designed to distinguish faithful followers of Yahweh from non-followers. But they were never designed to save. And the people said, Amen. I'm going to drive that one home. We've got to get that right. Hebrews 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year it's a reminder it's not a cleansing for it is impossible it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins Consequently. which are things offered according to the law, he then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. How does that get there? by the embedding of the Holy Spirit. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now catch this, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We frequently use names of places figuratively in our own speech, if we still wonder how legitimate this is. I often refer to the 11 years that I worked for the New York City Department of Education. Right, Rob? As my Vietnam. I've never been to Vietnam and I'm sure it's a lovely place. My country's involvement in the Vietnam War though was a disaster for all involved. I grew up watching it. Our heroic soldiers were put in harm's way and placed under such incompetent directives that they suffered unnecessary and numerous hardships and were never allowed to win the war. So when I refer to something as my Vietnam, you know I'm referring to something that did not go well, caused me great angst, and still gives me disturbing flashbacks to this day. I or we could also say uh, that we never want to return to Egypt. That wording is actually used in the scriptures. It's another place I've never been. I'm sure it's a wonderful place. I'd love to visit it. Not a place I have anything against, but this phrase we could all use and we would know right away what we're referring to. I would be figuratively expressing that I do not wish to return to a place that may meet my physical needs, but my spiritual needs would be compromised and I would be enslaved to do someone else's bidding. We are not to return to Egypt. Zion, the mountain, slash Jerusalem, the city, and remember, Isaiah is using them interchangeably, were literally and became figuratively the place where God dwells with his people. That's the important takeaway that we have this morning. Zion and Jerusalem are figurative references to the place where God dwells with his people. Initially, it was geographical, now it's spiritual. Once a Jebusite fortress in the city of Jerusalem, David captured Zion and turned it into the spiritual and political center of worship. And power for all of Israel. It became the geographical location that represented the rule and reign of Yahweh in the lives of his people. That's why he does this. Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, thus expanding the parameters and meaning of Zion. Jeremiah proclaims, come let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Isaiah uses the name Zion in chapters 40 verse 9 to refer to the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah uses it to refer to the land of Judah. Now you see an expansion. Zechariah uses it to refer to the entire nation of Israel. Isaiah then uses it to refer figuratively to Israel as the people of God in chapter 60, verse 14. The writer in Hebrews says, We have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Peter identifies 60:14, uh, this verse we just read, as a reference directly to Christ as the cornerstone of Zion. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Obviously, Peter is not encouraging believers to place their trust in a big block of sandstone somewhere in the Middle East. Right? So, for these reasons, I do not believe we are to watch for the reimplementation of a literal temple practice in Jerusalem. I do believe that the day did come for the saints of old to see the spiritual Zion/Jerusalem be established by Christ's death, resurrection, and sealing of His people by His Holy Spirit. But I also believe that it's coming; He's coming again. And that time is going to be permanent. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Left to our own devices, we have no righteousness and we have no salvation. This is not because we are of our current generation or because we are of the most part composed of Gentiles. It is because we are descendants of Adam as are all Jews and Gentiles. Because of our nature being of sin and of rebellion against God, no man or group of people or physical nation has ever been or could ever be righteous or provide salvation. Righteousness and the salvation provided by righteousness, therefore, must come from a radically different source and one that is outside of man, the descendants of Adam. It cannot come from following the law or from doing good things or offering the right kind of sacrifices or being a physical descendant of the right person. It must be achieved by one who can achieve it and then impart it to those who lack it. This is another reason why the initial references to Zion and Jerusalem cannot be limited to a geographical location or group of people. It must refer in a symbolic way or figurative way to Christ to his righteousness, to his salvation that he provides for his people. Once again, Zion slash Jerusalem is that place where God dwells with his people, a place where he made it possible because he could not, we could not and cannot, a place where righteousness and salvation can be experienced and and seen despite who and what we are. How does this authentic righteousness go forth as brightness and the salvation as a burning torch? Both are references to light. What does light do? Well, it illuminates. It reveals things that are actually there. As we proclaim the gospel, we're turning on the light switch. Sin is exposed, separation from God is revealed, and the solution of salvation in Christ is made evident But it requires that we first proclaim the gospel, not just in word, but also in deed. Verse 2 continues, The nations, as a result of this, shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. Notice the use of the term nations. This is important, especially in our current culture. This is the way the Lord refers to the multiplicity of people groups that could be distinguished by geography, by government, by religion, or by various other cultural distinctives. Notice distinction is never made in the scriptures by color. Amen? Amen. To do so is unbiblical, and those who do it are acting unbiblically. Amount of melanin in one's skin is not an advantage or disadvantage in the economy of sin and salvation. All have sinned. Let me say that again. All have sinned. (laughs) And fall short of the perfect standard of God. No one seeks God and no one does good when left to their own devices. And all are saved and then sanctified exclusively through the saving work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Black, brown, and white all burn equally in the fires of Gehenna with only the hope of the cross to rescue them. He continues, And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. I believe this points to the change of Zion slash Jerusalem as the name of God's collective people to that of the church. I don't think this concerns itself, though, with an actual name, uh, but rather an identity. Again, this identity would be that of God's people, starting out as physical Zion or Jerusalem, and then expanding in scope to a non-physical but spiritual assembly of those redeemed in Christ. Verse 3 you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It's interesting. Here we shift into what is basically marriage language. Crowns and jewelry are used to indicate status and or to bring attention to the beauty of the wearer. They are a source of glory. It is both wonderful and horrifying at the same time that we, the saved in Christ, would be that which is to bring glory to God. True. It's only horrifying though if we compromise our beauty by not manifesting the character of Christ before those who see and hear us. At this point, the author begins equating the relationship between God and his people to that of a husband and wife. In Proverbs 12:4, it says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. I'm not stupid. Contrary to what you may think, (laughs) I know, and nobody has to tell me twice, that my wife makes me look good. Right? (laughs) You can amen that if you want to. She is more attractive than I am and softens my sometimes abrasive intensity. People don't stop what they're doing to look at me, but they do to look at her. I then get to meet them and communicate the gospel. They are attracted to her physically, personally, socially. She is the crown of my glory. And that is biblical. And that is given to us because we then, as the bride of God, become the crown of his glory. Because of the righteousness and salvation imparted to us by the promised one, we make God pleasant to look at and to consider. We demonstrate his worthiness to be known. We glorify him by giving those around us living illustrations of his love, his grace, his mercy, his character. And in so doing, we increase our opportunities to explain those things by presenting the gospel message. That only works, though, when we are being beautiful. When we imitate the world around us in a derogatory language that we may use, the impatience we may manifest The gossip in which we engage, the slander we utter, the duplicity we exercise, and just the endless array of sin we display, we become repulsive. Not just driving others away from us, but driving others away from the one we are to glorify and draw people to. Walking with the Lord in ways that we think, emote, speak, and act will demonstrate the wise, steadfast, gracious, and merciful ways of God's character such that people will see him. Through us. Verse 4 You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. These are both ugly, very ugly conditions. These are repulsive circumstances. These are, however, characteristics of the environment God's people will soon be living in under exile if they're not there already. They'll go through a period, primarily because of their idolatry in which they will be perceived as forsaken and desolate the promise here though is that it will come to an end that is what 62 is all about but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married the author continues with marital language That phrase, my delight is in her, is the new name promised in verse 2. And the next thing I I really need to hear is that God delights in his people, in his bride, of which I am a part. That means he delights in me. I need to know that. Not because of my constant righteous living, uh, which we all know will never be, but because of his salvation and righteousness imparted to me that we talked about earlier. Verse 5 continues, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Now, in spite of the way this sounds, it's kind of strangely written, this is not some Oedipal complex being manifest in his prophecy. Rather, it is a reference to a blessing that will continue through generations. The divine marriage between God and his bride will not be limited to one person, one entity, or one generation, but will pass on to the next those in the immediate hearing of this prophecy know what it is to lose what, they've, what they have to invaders and conquerors. They know what it is to be ravaged by other nations. God is promising them that this marriage, this redeeming relationship, will not be one that is short-lived but will continue over many generations. He continues, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse six, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. And here we transition a little bit out of the marital motif, and now into a more warlike motif. This is war language. There's a brilliantly directed scene in Tolkien's The Return of the King. It begins in broad daylight when Pippin, one of the hobbits, sneaks his way onto one of the beacons which is a pile of wood located high on a mountain that when ignited would alarm those on the next mountain to ignite their beacon. We have any uh, Lord of the Rings fans in here? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. In the scene, after we see Pippin ignite the first beacon, the camera spans out and we get to see off in the distance that the next one miles away produces a flame. Then the one next mountain and so on, and so on, um, as each beacon has a watchman ready to relay the alarm. As we watch these beacons progressively come to life, we see the sun go down, indicating the passage of time, we see a period of darkness, the piles of wood continue to light, and then the sun comes up and they continue to light, thus showing us how broad of a span this series of beacons covered it also showed us that there were men intentionally watching the previous beacon to light as their cue to light their own requiring them to actively watch not TV not their cell phones not their iPads but a pile of wood miles away hour after hour day after day maybe even week after week month after month and maybe even year after year And what they're waiting for is that critical moment of when it is their duty to shine the alarm. But they're ready. So, who are the watchmen that need to be on call all day and all night and never be silent? He answers that here in the text. He says, you who put the Lord in remembrance. It's pretty simple. Is there anyone here who takes God into consideration when making decisions about their life? There's only five of you, okay? (laughs) That's not good. You five are the watchmen, okay? Should be every one of you. You are, I am, we are to be ready in season and out of season to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We need to be ready. Why? Because there are numerous enemies of God's bride who will seek to do her harm. In Matthew, Jesus warns, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like us. They've made it inside. Paul tells Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." Wow! How full is Long Island of that? Peter writes in his second letter, "...but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." Again, these false prophets rose among the people. They're inside. Jude then tells us, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The watchman heeds the guaranteed warnings that false teachers and false teachings will arise within the assembly. We don't take it as a joke. We don't take it lightly. Those false teachers will look and sound like righteous teachers and fool even the elect. The well-equipped watchmen, though, will be able to identify them, remove them from the assembly, and counteract their message with God's uncorrupted word, thus effectively defending God's bride. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. It's not going to stop. We're not done until we go home. Verse seven: and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. My favorite part of the scene that I described to you from the return of the king uh, of the beacons that were being ignited over a span of miles that would really on the ground take a three days journey. When it gets to the last one, who's there? King Aragorn. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay, now you know the bad guys are going to get it, right? Aragorn, the son of the previous king who is in line to take the throne, immediately embarks on, on his mission to rescue his friends, protect the central city of Minas Tirith, where is located the seat of the king that would be their Zion slash Jerusalem, and dismember as many of the evil horde as he can in the process. That's the cool part. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. The bad guys aren't going to take your stuff anymore. Verse 9, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Verse 10 Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people. He's coming, the king's returning. Verse 11, behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Again, figurative language. There's not this thing, salvation coming, there's this person who he's referring to Our salvation that's coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This right here is the return of the king. He's not an earthly king like David or Aragorn, presiding over an earthly kingdom. The true and eternal king clearly declared that his kingdom is not of this world, and that not all who physically descend from Abraham would be those who are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Verse 12 And they shall be called the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. There's a final and critical point to highlight here. Who's performing the action in this verse? Is it the people that are doing the seeking? No. They, or we, are actually the recipients of the action. The people of God, upon the return of the king, will not be uh, called the seeking, but rather the sought out. This is a responsibility God takes on himself, as he must, if he's going to have a relationship with his people. Because according to Romans 10, starting in verse 9, we can't do it. Verse 9, for we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Welcome to the state of man. But. Whenever you hear that, there's good news coming. But. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, we stand righteous and saved before God because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. I'm oft accused of being arrogant because I confidently proclaim that I will be readily accepted into heaven in reality, nothing could be more humble. And I'm not patting myself on the back for being humble, I'm just calling it what it is. What the accusers fail to understand is that the greatest act of arrogance is having a standard of heavenly entry that is built on good works. And they think I'm claiming that I have worked effectively. I am not. What they fail to see is that I know that to be the farthest thing from the truth. I am so clear in my thinking that I have not and cannot work effectively, nor can they, and that seeing heaven must be completely done for me rather than by me, just as is the case for them. The king came to accomplish that righteousness and salvation in his people and will come again to permanently establish his kingdom and eradicate all sin from all places for all time. And we will then be able to echo with Gandalf at the king's coronation and reunion with his bride, in the days of the king, may they be blessed. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for shattering the chains of sin and death that we may be free. And Lord, you know that as descendants of Adam, we even get that wrong. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would clean up our thinking, that you would help us fully grasp that salvation belongs to you, not to us. That you have imparted it to us, but it is your salvation, it is your righteousness. And Lord, help us to see our good works as a product of salvation rather than a cause. Lord, we thank you for Isaiah and the words that you spoke through him. Thank you for giving us guidance, for giving us instruction, and this morning for giving us hope as we look forward to the return of our King. And God, I pray that you would empower us, give us wisdom, give us boldness, so that we may go out and live as children of the King who are declaring his arrival. And we thank you for that privilege in Christ's name. Amen.